there, I'm Jay Goldstein, head of program at Petrie. I'm your host, and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast. For those of you who don't know us, Petrie develops companies attacking the world's largest problems at the frontier of biology and engineering. This podcast is about spotlighting inspiring founders who are innovating and improving human health and sustainability. Today's episode is focused on biomaterials, transforming our material world with biology and engineering for a more sustainable future. Today, we'll talk to Andras Forgox, founder of Modern Meadow. Modern Meadow uses proprietary technologies to create leather biomaterials, which require zero animal slaughter and much lower inputs of land, water, energy, and chemicals. At the core of this is biofabrication. Biofabrication is the next manufacturing revolution. New materials can be designed and engineered at the most fundamental level by tuning and assembling biomolecules. We'll dive deeper into the breakthrough science a little later. We're gonna learn about Andres' start as a founder. We'll take a deep dive into the science. We'll explore its impact on the field and on our sustainable future. And finally, we'll get three concrete tips from Andres to help founders, perhaps like you, building at the intersection of biology and engineering. All right, let's dig in. Andres, it's great to have you here with us today. Great to be here. Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born in Budapest, Hungary. Came to the U.S. with my parents um, when I was two years old. Uh, went back when I was five, uh, so we didn't stay very long. My father came here because he was a postdoc in physics and then had to go back uh, to Hungary in the, in the early 80s. And then he had a chance to continue his, uh, his physics research in France. So at the age of eight, um, I moved to France, was there for a couple of years, and then we came to the U.S. again when I was 10 years old and have been here more or less continuously since. Wow, that's a world education. That's amazing. A lot of hopping around when I was young. Yeah. If you were to describe your childhood in three words, how would you describe it? I would say um, international, happy, and scientific, right? Because I was in a family of, of, of scientists and doctors. When did you realize that you are an entrepreneur? Did you have any early experiments with innovation? I would say that um, I was very extracurricularly active in school. I almost spent more time on the activities outside of the classroom than I did in the classroom, which was a, a telltale sign. And, and, and certainly some of those extracurricular activities were like little businesses um, and, and were quite elaborate. I got very into model United Nations, you know, having had this experience of growing up on both sides of the Iron Curtain, uh, going to college in the 1990s after the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, for me, that was a very special moment. And that's why I was drawn to experiences like that. And of course, model United Nations was also a kind of a, um, a, a kind of a fun social activity for nerds like me. So I got very into it and I became the secretary general of the world model United Nations conference, which was like nerd among nerds, but, but it was a, it was, it was, it was actually a, a, a lot of activity. I mean, a lot of effort for college students to organize an international conference where hundreds of students from other universities would come from all around the world. And it was really run like a business. So that was for me, one of my earlier, most formative experiences in entrepreneurship. When I graduated from college, I started in Wall Street, working for a major bank, uh, Citigroup, at the time Solomon Smith Barney. And there too, I had the opportunity to be intrapreneurial 
before I was an entrepreneur, right? So it's always, I, I found myself having a series of these entrepreneurial experiences, either in an extracurricular context or being an intrapreneur within a larger organization before I built up enough courage to strike out on my own. How did you get excited about biofabrication? What lit a fire in you and committed you to working in this area? You know, I've always been really interested in biology and I've always been really interested in the sciences. I mean, I, I grew up as um, the son of a, of a physicist and, uh, and, a, and of a doctor, mom. And I remember having dinner table conversations about the sciences and conversations about the sciences on long drives, right? So it's always been a part of my upbringing. I've always had this interest in, in, in the sciences on one hand, international um, challenges and opportunities on the other. That was just an artifact of my upbringing. And then you might say business, which is something that I discovered um, early in my career. And, and, and that intersection, science meets global opportunity, meets the scalability and impact potential of business, is, is where I've, I've, I've been looking for the intersection. And for me, that's what led ultimately to, to finding multiple entrepreneurial opportunities in biofabrication. I will also say that my father had a lot to do with it. You know, he's a theoretical physicist who became an experimental physicist who was one of the first to integrate biology and physics in the course of his research and his career. And he was doing some of the most interesting research of his career around 2005 when I was working at McKinsey at the time as a, in, in a consulting firm. And I was having conversations with him about the research that he was doing in biofabrication. He was telling me about the patents he had filed and, and some uh, research he had, uh, had in 3D bioprinting of, of human tissue. And that is one of the, the moments that really tangibly started me on this, on this path of how can we commercialize biofabrication. Before we get to Modern Meadow, can you tell us a little bit about the story of Organovo? Yeah. So as I mentioned, around 2005, I'm working as a consultant in New York, and my father is doing some of the most crazy, interesting research of his career at the intersection of biology and physics. He was one of the, the early researchers to integrate those disciplines, to look at how biological phenomena happen from the standpoint of physics. And in 2005, 2006, he had published a prominent textbook in that field. He had received with a group of uh, other researchers, a very large national science foundation grant, a $5 million grant, which in that field was pretty sizable. And he had filed some really interesting patents in bioprinting. And when I was talking to him about what bioprinting is, 3D printing of human tissue, I mean, it sounded to me like Star Trek medicine. And, and so I was very intrigued. And, and so being at McKinsey, I was able to, to um, loop in some of the smartest colleagues that I had. Um, you know, I was working with some really brilliant people and I, I, I pulled them in and, and we started having conversations about bioprinting to see if, is, is there a there there commercially? What, what could, where could we take this kind of technology? And so I remember in 2006, having a series of Sunday night discussions where we pull in more and more people over time. And it kind of became like the Sunday night book club talking about biofabrication. And it eventually picked up so much momentum that we knew we had to start a company. And that's what led to Organovo. 
let's transition over to Modern Meadow. You guys were one of the first companies to explore cell-based meat technologies. What were you seeing at Organova that made you think, hey, maybe we should use this to make meat and leather? I'm gonna introduce to our conversation, Josh Moser, who is one of our partners here. He oversees our sustainability portfolio, and I'd love to have Josh join the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Um, yeah, maybe we can just continue with that thread. So was there a specific, when, when you were at Organovo, was there something specific, a specific experiment or piece of data that you saw that suggested that what you were doing there might actually be feasible for different market opportunities like meat and leather? You can just talk us through the process there around starting Modern Meadow. That would be great. What became very clear is that the technology that we were developing under this broader category of biofabrication. There was a specific version of biofabrication that Organova was developing, and that was bioprinting, the 3D printing of human tissue. And Organova was using it for medical research applications, creating tissues and organs that could help test and develop new drugs. But it became clear to us, and it became clear to other observers of this emerging technology, that potentially there could be other applications beyond medicine. For example, um, if you can create little human uh, muscle tissue or you know skin tissue, is it crazy to think about creating meat and leather using similar technologies? And so those were very intriguing ideas for us, but they were out of scope for Organovo. Mm -hmm. Organovo was focused on medical opportunities, there was so much opportunity for us at the time, just in the medical um, research and potentially medical therapeutic realm that, that we didn't want to consider other, other uh, opportunities. But I then was working as a venture investor. And um, with the fund that I was, was with, we became quite active investing globally, including China. Hmm. And at some point I went to live in China in 2010 and 2011. And living in China, I was just struck by how exciting the economic growth there was, the explosion of the consumer economy. I was in Shanghai, and it was just an exciting time to be there. But you could also see that growth came at tremendous environmental expense. The quality of the air was not great. The quality of the water, you could taste it in the water. And my wife and I, we were living there and, and we could just see that, that all of this growth, all of this consumption was not free of charge. It was coming at the expense of the environment. And what's worse still is that if everybody in China would consume the way the rest of the world, you know, in the US and Europe did, it would just destroy our planet. And so I was personally very disturbed by that and, and, and was thinking, well, what is it that I know something about? biofabrication, we'd already been thinking about applications for that technology beyond medicine. Well, you know, given that a big part of consumption is from animal products, right? Uh, there's lots of stories about tainted meat, for example, in China, lots of stories about, you know, the, the tremendous environmental footprint of livestock, right? And how do you balance that in, in China? Certainly lots of consumption of leather goods and lots of growth of, of fashion and luxury uh, there. And I thought to myself, well, maybe that's the there there. Maybe there's an opportunity for some form of biofabrication beyond medicine. And that became the founding idea behind uh, Modern Meadow. It was really driven by a question. Can we take these technologies beyond medicine? And then 
me feeling firsthand that there's an urgency to pursuing that as a as a potential solution. Okay, so we're you've we've founded Modern Meadow at this point. I mean, it's interesting when we look back at some of the early patents that you guys filed, you know, which date back to 2011, 2012. And I believe it was one, in one of the first few that you filed. So you described this bioprinting process that you've talked a little bit about. And you basically have these non-human muscle cells and they're aggregated into larger and larger units until they resemble full tissue. So basically you have these individual cells that are aggregated. You take those aggregated cells, you print them into a layer of aggregated cells, and then you stack those layers on top of one another. They ultimately fuse, they form a tissue. Hopefully that, that's about right. But I'm curious, like looking back on it now, uh, what were some of the biggest and most surprising challenges that you ran into from a scientific and technical perspective using those really early and pioneering cell-based approaches? Yeah, really good question. So in the very beginning of Modern Meadow, we formed the company around a, a, a particular view of biofabrication, a particular experience of biofabrication that we had previously. And that was based around mammalian cell culture and tissue culture, as, as, as you mentioned. And we, we were actually quite literal in our thinking about, about how we should make consumer products. Well, if we want to make meat, let's say, without the animal, we should literally grow muscle cells. Right? And uh, if we want to make leather or materials without, without the animal, we should literally grow skin cells and then take it through a tanning process. And what we realized, first of all, early on in Modern Meadow, we realized that um, even though we developed technology using the mammalian cell culture in both of those spaces, materials and foods, we realized early on that you have to pick. As a startup company, you need to be focused. And we picked materials to focus on. And we decided that even though we were the very first company to develop the technology in food, that we would hold on to that technology and spin it out at a later date when we could have a dedicated team go against that right opportunity. And I'll get to that later. But the original technologies that we developed were mammalian cell-based. And as cool as that technology is, as interesting as it is in the laboratory, as cutting edge as tissue engineering is, from an academic standpoint and a biomedical standpoint, it is not the best technology to scale for consumer applications. And it is also not the technology that delivers the most tunability in the world of material science. So we actually had to go back to first principles in 2015 and ask ourselves, well, gosh, we're looking to make materials that can move the world away from leather, animal leather. Why do we actually want to recapitulate skin cells and tissues? That's not what consumers are asking for. At the end of the day, leather is a proteinaceous material. It's made of a, of a matrix of structural proteins. In the case of leather, it's collagen. And so what we really need to do is get very, very smart about protein-based materials. We need to get very smart about structural proteins and how is it that we can work with proteins as nature's building block to create a range of materials that can actually bring differentiated performance and better sustainability to consumers? Not be biomimetic, but actually be inventive with biology and unlock new function and new properties with biology. 
And today, I would define biofabrication as that. How do you work at the molecular level with the building blocks of nature to actually unlock new functionalities, new properties, and not just be mimetic? Yeah, so so you guys, you know, obviously switch from a a cell-based approach to a fermentation-based approach, utilizing genetically modified yeast to produce collagen. And I'm just wondering, can you talk us through this transition? Like, what were some of the specific factors, specific metrics that you guys considered to make a clear decision? There are two major insights that we've had in the development of our technologies. And I would say that we were consistently always solving for the same thing, which is how can you create the best performance, the best consumer experience, the best sustainability at the best price, right, in the most scalable way, using biology as the engine of innovation. And the the two major transitions we went through are going from a mammalian cell-based approach to a fermentation-based approach to produce the proteins and then building those materials from those proteins. And then the next major transition that we've gone through is to realize that the fermentation-based proteins that we made, which were collagen, were really representative of a broader category of protein. That collagen was not the only protein that could work in our um, bio-alloy technology, that they were actually, they were representative of a type of protein, and that actually some of those proteins we could source directly from plant-based sources. So we now have the option today of using fermentation-based proteins when they make sense, and plant-derived proteins when they make sense. Because at the end of the day, protein is protein, right? And we're not working with just one type of protein. We're working with a whole category of structural proteins. So for some applications, you might want a special functionality that you can get through a bio-designed fermentation-based protein. But for some other applications, you can get it that functionality just as well, if not better, from a plant source much more efficiently, much more sustainably, much more cost-effectively, and in a way that, frankly, the consumer even understands better, right? Because the consumer is not going to put on a shoe or wear a handbag and say, hey, wait a minute, this is made of proteins. Now tell me, are these proteins based on fermentation or are they based on farming? Really helpful to hear that evolution. I'm kind of curious to just to extend it about where you think we're going here. So I guess, you know, over the last several decades, SynBio and industrial biotech more broadly you know, have initially targeted higher value, lower volume products like drugs, cosmetics, flavors, fragrances, et cetera. But now we're seeing it take on more intermediate value and, and higher volume goods like those that, that you're working on. So I'm, I'm curious what continues to excite you about this space as you look forward. And, and maybe we can also cover the inverse as well. Like what, what areas are you less excited by? I mean, I, I think that, you know, synthetic biology is a very powerful toolkit. And I do think that within the next five to 10 years, you're going to see more and more opportunities for fermentation-based ingredients to have impact at scale Mm -hmm. in a price point where they're going to become more and more competitive with traditional agriculture. I still don't think that it's going to be the winning solution in all cases. So I think it is important to, again, just go to first principles and say, when is it that traditional agriculture makes sense? which operates at incredible scale and efficiency. And when is it that traditional agriculture is either too wasteful or, or has other trade-offs where uh, you're better off to, to go with a fermentation-based approach? 
Or what is it that maybe traditional agriculture cannot give you? Maybe a newly designed biomolecule uh, that you can only produce through fermentation. So I don't think, uh, for, for us, we've learned that, that healthy agnosticism is important. And in modern meadow, that's why we use fermentation for some opportunities and we use plant-derived extraction for other opportunities. And I think that that's key to yeah. just kind of know that there, you, I, I'm incredibly excited about the, the opportunity for biotechnology and bioprocessing to come together with material science and other capabilities. Because I do think that the next, next few decades of consumer products are going to be powered by biology in all kinds of really novel ways. Andres, what gets you most excited about Modern Meadow and its potential impact? I'm most excited about Modern Meadow because we're developing technologies that can really have an impact at scale on very daunting challenges like climate change. And we can bring the consumer along to be a part of the solution. So if you're a consumer today, what can you do, right, to behave in a way that's more climate positive? And through the, some of the innovations that we're developing at Modern Meadow, we are able to take the products you love and we're able to be a real catalyst for sustainability in the materials that make, make them up. So they can actually be much more positive from a climate change standpoint, from the standpoint of the greenhouse gas emissions without compromising the consumer experience. If you were to offer three pieces of advice to listeners out there, as biotech founders launch and build their own companies, what would you say are the most practical or conceptual advice you could offer? Let's focus in three areas. The first area I'd love to hear you talk about is customer discovery. Do you have any advice on customer discovery for founders? Absolutely. I mean, it's never too early to talk to potential customers. I started talking to customers before I even founded a company. In fact, that's what led me to founding Modern Meadow is potential would-be customers approaching us with their problems. And by talking to customers about their problems, that actually gives you an idea about opportunities. So never too early. What I would say is that if you're working on a company which is about long lead time innovation, then it has to be a, a bit of a balancing act because your customers can also become very impatient, right? If they get into a conversation with you and it'll take you years to be able to get to the point where you can actually serve their interests. So I would say talk early, manage their expectations, and then know kind of when to re-engage when you actually have something to offer. Do you have any advice concretely on how to have those conversations? Something you've learned after years and years of practice of talking to customers? I think it's important not just what companies you're talking to, but who in those companies you're talking to. So we deal a lot with consumer brands, right? Ranging from fashion to footwear. And different companies have different definitions for what they mean by R&D and what their time horizon is for R&D. And within those companies, different departments and different people have different time horizons. So it all depends on the nature of the innovation you're working on. It's, in, it's very important to associate yourself with companies that if your innovations are longer term and need more time to work with companies that have more of a purview uh, and patience that aligns with that. And to also understand that you should talk to the departments in those companies that are tasked with long-term innovation. 
right? So, so I think it's be selective about the companies and then be selective about who within those companies are the right people to have conversations with. Otherwise, you're, you're just going to talk to people who will lose patience. Let's talk about scaling up. I would love to hear your perspective on how do you go from a lab bench to a consumer industrial impact? How do you, how do you make that happen? I would say that the technologies that we developed in the very beginning of Modern Meadow were really, really cool, but academic. And they would have required new-to-the-world factories to be built at tremendous expense and time. And so it's really good that we were able to step back, go to first principles, and think about scalability from the outset when we redeveloped our technologies. What I would say about scalability is that it's not an afterthought. You've got to, depending on the applications you're going after, and if you're uh, if you want to be consumer relevant, which was our mission from the beginning, you've got to address scalability up front. You can't just say, hey, I'm going to solve the technology puzzle and then dot, 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 engineering will solve scalability or dot, 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 you know, tens of millions of dollars of investment will build that scalability. For us, it was very important to be able to refactor our technologies, to deconvolute them and to think about how we can solve for sustainability up front, I mean, sorry, scalability up front. And we're constantly solving for that. And then the other thing I would say is that it's also important to not scale too early. That's a mistake that I feel like we've, we've made. We felt the pressure to need to scale and we made investments in scale up investments in pilot production capabilities around a process that was still in development. And as a result, when you feel rushed to build out manufacturing around a process that's still in development, of course, you're going to be spending more money to gain some time. But if you have the luxury of being able to do it more stepwise and to really get your processes right at a smaller scale and then scale up, you're going to be smarter about, about how you spend your resources. Let's transition to one last piece of feedback from you around building your team, really specifically about your leadership team and advisors, which are critical to early stage startups. Do you have any advice there? Yeah, which is the, that the hallmark of, of a great entrepreneur is being able to find people that are much smarter than you to work with and complementary to you to work with um, in, in different areas. So the best thing you can do as an entrepreneur is to associate with quality early on and at every step. Find the smartest people that you can work with who bring different perspective to the problems that you're going to be tackling. Best thing you can do is to have a, a founding team that has cognitive diversity, where you all are able to bring different expertise, different capabilities to the opportunity. And that's true not just for your founding team, which is the most important investment you can make in talent, but it's also true to the advisors right, that you bring into the company. Your next challenge is how do I find advisors that can be mentors to me, mentors to the company, who can connect us to talent, they can connect us to partners, they can connect us to capital. And it's also true for, you know, as you select investors and as you select board members. And so, so I would say um, uh, very important to seek diverse talent and diverse insight as you assemble your team. We tend to be drawn to people that are like us, but I think the best thing you can do as an entrepreneur is to, is to put together 
complementary team of, of, of talented people. Diversity is such a multi-dimensional puzzle that um, I think it's it's so important to have diversity in all forms. And I would I would basically say cognitive diversity because at the end of the day, it needs to translate into different ways of thinking. You you want to make sure that that the people that you're working with that you have a culture where there's different perspectives brought to a problem and that you're not all, you're not coming to agreement too quickly. You actually are very, very good at having heated debate in the room that you create a culture where you can have really good discussion where it's not about everyone falling in line and just executing. And it takes real investment to, to find people who, who would see the world differently than you, who would disagree with you, who know something you don't. Right. And then to be, be able to create a culture that fosters that kind of interaction. And we're still working on it. It's never mission accomplished on that. We're always working on doing a better job of having that cognitive diversity at work. But it's, it's the core of what we do at Modern Meadow. I mean, biofabrication itself is an interdisciplinary field. It's about biology, material science, engineering, design, all coming together to solve, you know, opportunities across sectors in a number of verticals. And, and that's why it's so important for us to be able to have diverse ways of thinking, coming together, challenging one another, so we come up with the best solutions. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and our listeners. We are absolutely cheering for you and for Modern Meadow. We're so appreciative of your time and for sharing all of your expertise with us. Thank you so much, Andres. Thanks, Jay, and thank you, Josh. Really good talking with you. If you haven't yet signed up for our Petri newsletter, go to our website, petri.bio, to stay connected.